open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. This is episode three in our week with Dr. Adam Back, Gandalf the White of the Bitcoin Project, remember, cited by Satoshi in the white paper. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Back. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. So, you know, we've been we've been talking about the the importance of extensifying Bitcoin in doing real hard computer science and then applying it. Let's turn our attention to this concept of confidential transactions that you've come up with. What exactly are these confidential transactions and why are they important? What uh, confidential transactions provide is a way to protect the values that you're transacting such that they're only visible to the people involved in the transaction. So now the Bitcoin blockchain is uh, very public more public even than most online electronic transactions today. So you can think of the Bitcoin blockchain as something like as if your credit card statement and bank statement were published online in a big global shared ledger with your name and address blanked off. And as you could imagine, that's a kind of concerting, disconcerting thought for many people. And there are actual security risks and privacy risks associated with that. And so confidential transactions is a, a way to retain the assurances and trust advantages of the Bitcoin blockchain while protecting more privacy. Is there actually an, a need or a desire for this? I mean, who, who's this coming from? Actually, it, you, you'll be surprised. So it comes from a number of directions. So let's start with the kind of business ecosystem and financial companies that recent, more recently have started looking at blockchain for the advantages it can provide to the existing financial networks. And certainly talking with folks from that sphere, it's very you know, very frequent that they would say that uh, one of their main concerns potentially with using blockchain technology as it is, is that it's an open public ledger. And so you know they, they would therefore be unable to protect the confidentiality of proprietary trading or dark pool transactions or just uh, transactions for clients of theirs. And there are, you know, good business reasons for not pre-publishing all of your business intent. It would, you know, undermine you or expose you to other companies competing with you based on your knowledge. So, you know, you've, you've done your analysis and you've decided a market strategy. You don't necessarily want to signal or communicate that to public at large. And in the existing financial system, there are actually quite large successful companies that specialize in acting as intermediaries to hide the identity of trading parties so that uh, they don't signal to their competitors what moves they're making. You know, if you have somebody who has a large position in something and have their name attached to it and they start selling, 
people will see that as a signal and get ahead of them, and they will then have difficulty selling their position uh, at a, a reasonable price. Uh, so that's on the business side. Now on you know just on the on the user side, you know if you if you have bitcoins, there are people who are paid a salary by Bitcoin companies in Bitcoin and people who have invested in Bitcoin or were early miners in Bitcoin and have a particular position. So if you think about the sort of credit card or bank statement case, when you go into a coffee shop and you buy a cup of coffee, you wouldn't normally expect the barista in the coffee shop to see your net worth, you know, flash pie on the till kind of thing, right? So Bitcoin kind of provides that kind of risk. And so firstly, that's kind of invasion of privacy norms in today's society. You know, I mean, your bank or your broker or your financial advisor knows your financial position, but everybody you interact with on day-to-day transactions doesn't know and frankly doesn't need to know. And there's also a security dimension. If you, if you engage in a low tra- value transaction sort of, you know, in a, in a very public place and somebody can therefore see your net worth, you're more likely to be mugged or you know, if that's exposed on the internet, you know, don't forget that Bitcoin transactions are broadcast on the network and often there's no particular attempt to hide the IP address of the originator of the transaction. So on the Bitcoin network today, if you know somebody has, let's say, 100 Bitcoins, which is quite a lot of money today, and they send a tenth of a Bitcoin to buy an online subscription or something, maybe they've released to the internet that they made a transaction of one tenth of a Bitcoin and sent 99.9 Bitcoins back to a change address and that would expose that IP address to suggest that there are a lot of Bitcoins in the management and you know there are geolocation services where you can basically cross-reference an IP address to an approximate street address and therefore there would be risk that perhaps perhaps their house will be burgled or they would be uh, enhanced security risk so that kind of information generally should be kept confidential because it's you know exposing people to risk it's violating privacy norms and it's acting as a barrier to adoption in existing financial situations. And the same kind of thing would apply to companies, you know, in the longer term where people are thinking about adoption of blockchain technology in, in the banking world, in the business to business transactions and shares and dividends. And to the extent that a conventional business, you know, if their financial information is available, it provides insight into their business that their competitors might be able to use. And, you know, maybe a competitor can see what their profit margin is, who their supplier is, what they're paying for their supplies, how much their staff are getting paid, how profitable they are. And all that kind of information is typically private. And so, you know, there, there have been some cases where People have tried to analyze existing Bitcoin ecosystem companies on this basis and get an insight into, you know, what their transaction volume is and that kind of thing. So it's therefore interesting to protect this information. And that's where confidential transactions come in. So, you know, we've got legitimate business use cases. We've got regulatorily compliant needs in order for Bitcoin to be adopted, for companies to not be releasing this type of information, maybe even with healthcare information that might end up being related to the blockchain. You know, I think under HIPAA in the U.S., you have to protect a lot of that uh, transactional data. Then we've got just general business intelligence. You don't want to be broadcasting all your margins as a business. What about the regulators. I mean, everything that has two legs is a terrorist these days. I attended the Silk Road trial. They'd had extensive blockchain analysis going on in there. 
isn't this just a tool for the illicit actors to use Bitcoin? Is it going to make it more anonymous? Right. So that's an interesting question. So if we just take a, a kind of sidestep into what confidential transactions achieve and how they achieve it. So yeah, yeah. How does it how does it actually work from a technical point of view? And then that'll perhaps help us address like what the the potential side effects of that implementation would be. Right. So as you know, the the blockchain provides a kind of real time audit function. So every time you receive a Bitcoin transaction, you're assured that the entire ledger back to the genesis block, basically, all the transactions add up. Every transaction is signed by the current owner of the coin before it's transferred, and the input amounts add up to the output amounts minus fees. So what confidential transactions do is they encrypt the values. So it's a kind of there's a novel piece of cryptography which is related to homomorphic encryption. So these these values are not actually encrypted, but they are private and not disclosed to third parties. They're private between the people in the communication. But because of the homomorphic commitment mechanism, the blockchain can nevertheless gain assurance and receive a kind of zero-knowledge proof that the values do in fact add up. It's just that the blockchain doesn't know how much the values are. So that's a kind of counterintuitive and strange effect. But nevertheless, it's using conservative cryptographic assumptions and it's uh, using the same basic underlying technology is the DSA signatures that are used within Bitcoin. And, and you came up with the, this whole concept of applying homomorphic encryption in this particular way to proof of work or to blockchain technology? Uh, yes. So in 2013, I had uh, proposed this and tried to optimize the computational and space uh, consumption on a blockchain of protecting values in this way. And that's now been implemented in the sidechain alpha that uh, the company I co-founded, Blockstream. And so Greg Maxwell did a lot of the work and Peter Willer in implementing this technology in, in a cryptographic library and integrating that into the sidechain. So the sidechain alpha that people can download and try now has uh, direct support for confidential transactions. Yeah, so... Using this technology, you can now, you know, do, do the kind of coffee shop thing of spending a tenth of a Bitcoin to the coffee shop and all the coffee shop learns is they receive a tenth of a Bitcoin, but they don't know that the input was a hundred Bitcoins and they don't know that the change is 99.9 Bitcoins, but they do know that encrypted 100 plus encrypted 99.9 plus the tenth of a Bitcoin they received balances so that they add up together minus a small fee. And will the miners' fee also be public, or can you yes. send uh, encrypted miners' fees? <laughs> so, I mean, the the miners' fee so far is public because you don't know which miner will win the block. You know, in in principle, you could encrypt it and prove it adds up, and you know, maybe disclose it to a miner later. But there would be some kind of technical issue that the miner won the block, and now you've got to atomically assure that they thereby receive the keys to be able to benefit from the fees and to discover what the fees are. So the fees at this point are public. And actually that illustrates uh, another aspect of confidential transactions, which is you can freely mix confidential values and publicly disclosed values. So, you know, by default, the, the fees are public, but you know, if you were making a donation and you wanted it to be public, or if you just, you know, didn't care about the confidentiality of the price of the cup of coffee, you could reveal that, value, but not the rest of the values. So you can mix and match effectively, and they're, they're compatible. 
So, you know, now we could come back to your your question about what does this do for privacy in terms of you know anonymity. So so far we've talked about what it does is it protects your security and your kind of privacy in terms of how much money you have or what your income is from people you contract with, and it obviously necessarily reveals the amount of a transaction directly to the person you're making a transaction to, but not by default to anybody else. Now, the the terms pseudo-anonymous and anonymous, those are terms of art in applied cryptography? Perhaps yes. you, can, you can help us ex- understand the difference between the two. So pseudonymity is a kind of linkable anonymity. So let's say, I guess, Satoshi is a good example, right? So, you know, he came forward and he released the Bitcoin source code and the white paper before that. And then he made a series of posts over a few years and people could see or assume that this was the same person. So they were linked together, but people didn't know his true identity. So that's pseudonymous. Whereas, and, and it's linkable. So, but and, and we can assume that the, the Genesis block is Satoshi's. Yes. Now, for pure anonymity, it might be more like, you know, you uh, use paper cash and you buy something at a shop and then you go somewhere else and you use the change somewhere else and so forth. And there's no particular linking unless, you know, so. Now, are we able to do that digitally uh, you know, through, say, Chamian Cash or, or some other? Wizardry. <laughs> yes. So, so actually, there's a kind of hierarchy. So, if you start off with an anonymous system where the individual payments are unlinkable, then you can always optionally add linkability on top. So, you would just sign your messages and say, yeah, "This this payment is mine, and this payment is mine," and that would link them together pseudonymously or with your real name as you choose. But the reverse is kind of difficult. If you if you start with a pseudonymous system, then it's difficult to create anonymity on top of that because it's all linked together by your pseudonym. And Bitcoin transactions are tending towards pseudonymous because they're sort of linked together by the ledger and the need for the ledger to track ownership. And so there are addresses, which are kind of like uh, transaction numbers or something, but there is some kind of correlation, you know, so in the coffee shop example, let's say I had a hundred Bitcoin in, in a wallet, which is quite a lot of Bitcoin. And I made a 10th of a Bitcoin payment and a change address. So there's a separate address to receive the change that, that went back to me. Now, an observer can see the connection that, you know, this, even, even when it's encrypted with a confidential transaction, that the, there is a link, right? So in the ledger, you can see that this, this amount, you don't know how much it was, but the hundred encrypted hundred Bitcoin was paid, was split in two parts and paid to these two parties. Now, as an observer on the outside, you don't really know whether I paid encrypted 99.9 or whether I paid 0.1. And this is not necessarily who that's to unless the the merchant in question publishes their address or it's linked. Or it gets directly. the peanut or whatever. Yeah. So there, there is some kind of linking, and that's the analysis that people do when they look through the blockchain to see, you know, which which transactions connect with each other. And, you know, as with, in, with the Internet in general, often there is some indirect linking, you know, because you do one transaction and you take the change and you do another transaction. And some of the transactions have your name and address associated with them because you buy something on Overstock or Tiger Direct or something and they ship, you know, a new graphics card or whatever it is you're buying to your home address. And so there's always the possibility that just by 
the internet is generally linked. Your IP address is usually trackable to your your cell phone provider or your DSL provider, and they keep logs generally of which IP address was leased to a given provider for this month or something like that. So people are not generally very anonymous on the internet. And frankly, you know, I mean, many people are not strongly caring, but they do care that it's not, you know, all publicly accessible and searchable. So there is plenty of opportunity for investigators to connect the dots if there's something they need to investigate. And as, as you mentioned, that's in fact what happened with the Silk Road analysis. And so, you know, coming back to confidential transactions, it doesn't actually change the analysis. It just hides the amounts involved. Can the amounts be zero? Can, can there be plausible deniability introduced into, into this? Yes. So that's an interesting effect that actually you can... You know, we were talking about a tenth of a cent, a tenth of a Bitcoin, but you could also pay somebody zero Bitcoins. And looking at it from the outside, you wouldn't be able to tell necessarily that's a, a zero Bitcoin payment. And that, that can have uh, useful applications for, let's say, uh, stock trades or something. So if you want to uh, not communicate, you know, if, if somebody can sort of generally get the idea that these trades are originating at a particular financial institution, and let's say the the actual stock in question is not encrypted, so they're you know, they're selling IBM stock now. It's it's an interesting signal for the market and their competitors to say, oh, you know, this financial institution has started selling IBM. Like, what do they know that we don't know? Kind of thing. And so, one way to combat that is, I mean, firstly, that they don't try to associate the institution with the particular addresses, but that can tend to get linked. You know, you just you sell small amounts of IPM and you see that they, and you know who bought them. So that would give you a hint that when you see that. So things can be pieced together in that direction too. So the way that they can prevent this kind of competitive analysis is they can on a daily basis sell zero units of IBM stock for zero dollars and just keep doing it every day. So when they actually do come to make a trade, you won't be able to distinguish, you know, okay, they've, they've made a decision in the market that it's time to buy or sell a particular stock. Man, it's just this has been a fascinating topic on uh, confidential transactions. You know, I'm just I'm just wondering. You've got a PhD in distributed systems. You've been working on digital cash and and these types of uh, solutions for a couple decades. When we look at confidential transactions, this new circle of magic. What level of magic is it? I mean, is this stuff for undergrads to be playing around with? Is it stuff for graduate students to be playing around with? Is it is it PhDs or even postdocs? I mean, how how difficult, how complex is this type of uh, is this type of work? It's pretty difficult stuff. I mean, you ideally, you know, so as I mentioned earlier, it's actually using conservative cryptography. So there's concern with cryptography that one shouldn't use really recent developments or algorithms that haven't withstood the test of time because. There are sometimes uh, advances where a particular algorithm is demonstrated to be weak, and it's also quite intricate that it's very easy to make small implementational algorithm mistakes that would uh, break the assurances it provides. So you really need somebody with the experience of designing and breaking systems. So actually, uh, Bruce Schneier, who's a famous... Uh, academic and applied cryptographer has been attributed with this um, saying of it's called Schneier's Law. It's been attributed to him, which is something to say that it's a common sort of trap that people fall into that they think they can 
design a cryptographic system and they're convinced it should be secure because they can't see how to break it themselves. But usually that doesn't work out so well. You know, even for people professionally, uh, relatively competent in this sphere, that what the, the litmus test for something being secure is that it's been published and peer reviewed by the academic experts. So it's, it's a kind of uh, trap. So, you know, usually people like to talk about uh, sort of meritocracy and that's something quite common in programming and computer science, but cryptography is something really where you want to know. And this, this was Schneier's point and he has this quote where he says, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, I've, I've designed this system and it's really secure and isn't it cool? You should, contrarily to the usual meritocracy rule, you should say, well, who are you and you know which systems have you designed and broken? Which is just a sort of, you know, that that's a quote from Schneier. So it's just an indirect way of saying that what assures the security of a system is the experience and the amount of, of, of the people who designed and try to break it and provide peer review of it. So with this kind of cryptography, you really want to go back to the academics who, you know, help design it or the world experts in it and get them to review it and also to try and prove the correctness of it. So in this case, this is cryptographic algorithm. I mean, the main kind of complicated component is a zero-knowledge range proof. So how technical we want to go, but basically uh, when you encrypt the values, there are homomorphic encryption algorithms that allow you to add up the encrypted values and then uh, decrypt it and get the value back. So let's say, you know, you've got encrypted three plus encrypted five and you arrive at encrypted eight. And if you decrypt the addition of those two ciphertexts and then decrypt it, you'll get back to eight. Now the problem, so that, that part is, you know, more straightforward, but the problem you have is that the addition is modulo a very large prime and there's a possibility for the numbers to wrap around. And that would present a security problem because if you could wrap the numbers around, you could print a very large amount of money and uh, nobody would be able to detect this fact. So what you need to do is to prove that the values don't wrap so that they're less than something, you know, so they're small enough that they couldn't wrap with a number of values being added together. And that's done with a range proof, you know, to prove that this number is between zero and a few billion or something, you know, whatever the range is. And, so there's a way to do that with a zero knowledge proof, which is where it gets kind of hard to understand. And uh, so it relies on a range proof by an academic researcher, Dr. Barry Schoenmakers. I'm sorry about the pronunciation. He's uh, from the Netherlands, and I'm sure I didn't do that justice. But uh, yeah, so he, he has a, a range proof. And um, so the confidential transactions uses that as a building block and does some additional optimizations that myself and Gregory Maxwell use to make it more compact um, because it, it uses blockchain space to provide the range proofs. Well, it's you know a lot of a, a lot of Bitcoin cannot just be summarized into 140 character tweets. You know, we just we we can't distill this most complicated subject that easily. It'd be nice if we could. You know, most people don't even probably know what a modulus is, but everybody can do clock arithmetic. You know, we, right. we know how to do clock arithmetic. We we have, you know, you, one o'clock, two o'clock, you get to noon, you're back to one o'clock, you know. Right. So it, it's not that it's not that we we don't have the capacity to understand it. It's just that a lot of people haven't really studied this branch of mathematics at all. 
would right. you say? Yes. I mean, it's cryptography is interesting in the sense that there are there are some areas where you can provide cryptographic proofs, you know, sort of mathematically prove the correctness or security with respect to some assumptions. So a common one would be the random oracle model. But the you know, even to combine the primitives is risky. So, you know, you have building blocks like elliptic curve cryptography, the elliptic curve version of discrete logarithms, or AES or hash functions. But even and and those Building blocks have known properties, but to combine them into a cryptographic protocol is itself fraught with risk because there are all kinds of gotchas and mistakes in the way that you can combine them. So it's it's uh, unfortunately often the case that deployed protocols in the field have design flaws. Uh, the field is littered with design flaws. So, I mean, an early version of PGP had a design flaw, SSH had a defined design flaw. Uh, SSL had numerous design flaws as kind of depressing sequence of SSL protocol bugs being discovered. And people who are trying to design protocols, you know, the way to go about acquiring that knowledge is to study all of the previous breaks and understand and internalize what went wrong and draw lessons and inferences from them in terms of protocol design and how to categorically avoid that class of mistakes and so there's a kind of accumulated knowledge about what's gone wrong and designing to avoid those mistakes and also to understand the combination rules for the building blocks what makes this all worse is that you're operating in a in an adversarial environment particularly in a network protocol or peer-to-peer protocol like bitcoin because it's not that you know the transaction is happening in a private network between two largely trusted computers it's out there on the internet and the other side of the cryptographic protocol, you know, if you're sending messages backwards and forwards is, should be considered to be, you know, adaptive and malicious. So he won't, he won't follow the rules of your protocol. So it's a common kind of misconception or failure in adversarial thinking to assume that because I designed and implement this protocol in this particular way that the adversary would run the same code and follow the protocol. No, <laughs> the adversary <laughs> will do whatever he can think to do, and he's very intelligent and adaptive. So, well, and know. that's part of you know when we're getting into the game theory. You know, I mean, there's cryptography and then there's cryptanalysis, right? <laughs> and right. Like cryptanalysis is how can we break this stuff? And we will we will try to think of everything that whoever designed it couldn't think of. Yeah, I mean, so there are some loose analogies to chess or something that, you know, you if you just take the first move and you have in mind that the opponent will do something else and you don't think what the opponent will do, then you can get an unpleasant surprise and say, <laughs> checkmate, kind of, yeah, <laughs> there go your Bitcoins. <laughs> right, so it's kind of similar with protocol design that you've, you know, there are some, a number of surprising things. So here's an example from SSL. So this researcher called Daniel Bleichenbacher, again, apologies for mispronunciation of a name. He found a way to trick SSL into decrypting a message for you. So you would, you would go to a web server and there would be some kind of encryption handshake. So to set up the keys and then start exchanging symmetrically encrypted messages. And there was a padding byte in, in the symmetric encryption. And what he observed is that there's an error message sent back by the server so that there are two possibilities if there's a garbling of the message. The checksum, sorry, the, the padding byte could be incorrect or not. And 
So unfortunately, the web servers were implemented, including the OpenSSL library, to give you just a little bit too much information to say whether the padding byte was correct or not, and then it would go on to fail later. And using this, he he found a way to incrementally trick the server into decrypting the message for you just by sending it lots of encrypted, you know, establishing a connection, gobbling it a little bit, having the server try to decrypt it and tell you which way it failed. It failed in the checksum or it failed in the padding byte. And by being adaptive and malicious over the course of um, something like a million Interactions, which is you know, an ab- abnormally low, high number of things. But Almost straight out of the imitation game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, you, you could just hit the server up, get it to tell you error messages, which, which way it failed, and then adapt what you're asking for in the next message to, you know, gain another bit of information. And across a million kind of interactions with a server, which is all automated, you could trick the server into decrypting the message that it's supposed to be protecting. And so it's a kind of example of the way that, you know, if you if you think about it just like, well, okay, you know, the server is going to run this code, but no, there's somebody in the middle and they're they're doing something adaptive adaptive and they can trick the server into doing something that was outside of your expectation. So you really need to think about edge cases and ways that somebody malicious can attack the system. And yeah, so those kind of things are recurring patterns, in fact, for all pro- most cryptographic protocols, particularly in a peer-to-peer system. Yeah, so to kind of bring this discussion on confidential transactions full circle, it's really been amazing that the Bitcoin protocol has not lost any Bitcoins at the protocol level. And is there anything particularly novel about your implementation of confidential transactions that eluded Satoshi when he originally designed Bitcoin? Or could he have designed confidential transactions into it back then? Hmm, I mean that's, is, that's, that's is some of the research you know some of the no, some of the research needed or that's an interesting question. So there there are some observations about the cryptography used in Bitcoin. So one thing to say is it's using Bitcoin as a, a very inventive and clever advancement of the state of the art in electronic cash systems. The main differentiator being that it's distributed. And so that kind of helped it get the bootstrap effect where previous more cryptographically assured systems like uh, DigiCash by Dr. David Chaum or the private uh, credentials technology by Dr. Stefan Brands, who's a former colleague and friend of mine, those systems had much higher kind of cryptographic security assurances, but they were operated on the central server. And so So not censorship resistant. Right. Or potentially. So, so so they would tend to get, you know, like DigiCash in particular was funded by a company. They even even in the sort of demo stages before there was really really actual, you know, exchangeability for dollars or Dutch guilders or what have you available for it, they ran into problems with the Dutch regulator, as the story goes. And and, and also DigiCash ran out of money. And so everybody who you, you could go and obtain some of their demo coins, they were called beta bucks. And, and people started to play with them, like, you know, sell some low value items on the internet for them, just to see if they could uh, bootstrap a value. And there was an assumption of scarcity because DigiCash, the company, had assured people that they would only issue up to a million dollars worth of these things. Well, not a million dollars, but a million units of beta bucks. So there, there was some, you know, there were some thousands of transactions made. I think I might have even had a few of these uh, 
bitcoins, but uh, <laughs> kind of when, like you may or may not have a bitcoin or two. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the the interesting thing was that Digicash went bankrupt, and those central eCash systems, the ledger is maintained by the server, and that's the kind of uh, record, the ledger of record, as it were, and. They went bankrupt and the ledger disappeared. Like the server went away, and so people had worthless coins because you couldn't tell which were spent and which were not spent. So everybody lost all their money, basically. And you know, there there was uh, obviously there would be they had a um, double spend problem, right? I mean, so they were dead in the water at that point. And I think that maybe influenced um, thinking of people who were exploring, you know, the applied cryptography of electronic cash systems that, okay, I guess you need a, a more decentralized system. So that, that kind of uh, refers back to what we were talking about in the first episode about the, the kind of early research in electronic cash systems building on Hashcash with, you know, Waydays, B-Money, uh, Nick Sabo's Bitgold ideas, which are more decentralized. Well, I guess I'll uh, let let you dodge the question. No, no. So, so I mean, no. Oh, no. I, I, oh, I, you're going to answer I, it. I did, I did have an answer. So <laughs> I just kind of a sidetrack there, but yes, I mean, so so particularly the cryptography used in Bitcoin is actually very very simple. It uses very very few constructs. So it uses elliptic curve digital signatures. It uses hash functions, and then you know, actually, in the securing of the private keys, which is not really relevant for the network protocol, there's also encryption and you know password management, that kind of thing. And it uses another construct called a Merkle hash tree. And there are some small hints in some of the minor mistakes made in that that suggest that Satoshi wasn't a, you know, an applied or a professional cryptographer. You know, the components were put together very carefully and robustly, but there were a few minor mistakes. So, for example, the Merkle tree serialization had a mistake that was fixed at some point. And... So the, the particular things, you know, the confidential transactions are more connected and rooted in the advanced electronic cash protocols by Dr. Stefan Brands and very shown mappers, range proof and so on. Um, and those protocols provide very high levels of anonymity in a way. So the interesting reason for anonymity in an electronic cash system is to guarantee fungibility. So, and that, that's just generally for people who are not familiar with that term, the idea that one cash unit is the same as another. So if you walk into a shop and you, and you buy something and you receive a note and it turns out, you know, a week later that that note had been shuffled around as people had spent it, but had been stolen from an ATM or from a, you know, a hold up or something, you know, your $10 note in your pocket doesn't suddenly become invalid or, you know, seized as a result of criminal proceeds because if that were to happen, it would undermine the fungibility or tradability, usability, confidence in, in the cash, in the, in the currency. Yeah. And even under the uniform, uniform commercial code, uh, as we talked about with uh, attorney, uh, Miles Cohen, uh, legal tender, uh, has special characteristics in bankruptcy which mm-hmm. might not apply to Bitcoin tokens, which could uh, have interesting implications. Yeah, so... But I mean, not to get too distracted. <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, if you look at Bitcoin, I mean, compared to David Chorm or Stefan Brand's electronic cash systems, they had, they use uh, variants of blind signatures. So David Chorm was actually the inventor of blind signatures and found the application of using it to build an electronic cash system. And 
that provides basically cryptographic assured fungibility. Uh, and the way that works is basically, you know, the, the, the reason that the bank or, you know, the eCash server, which is centralized in those systems, is not able to discriminate between currency units is it's not able to correlate them. So if you, if you, you know, deposit funds in a, in a bank that's using the Chorm electronic cash protocol, and you get you get back your unit of electronic cash, and you go spend it at a merchant, and the merchant deposits it. The bank, even in collusion with the merchant, can't link the payment together. So, so that would prevent it from, you know, sort of breaking fungibility and claiming that a given transaction had to be undone or frozen or blocked or, you know, traded at below value or something. And so, Bitcoin has uh, much much weaker fungibility assurances, and it's it's a concern. You know, we've. Some of the analysis you talked about could potentially lead to some currency units, which you might receive through no fault of your own, being somewhat tainted or frowned upon, or you know. So, so things are generally okay at the moment, and de facto, it's it's uh, been treated as fungible. But there is a slight risk that that could degrade at some point. And so, confidential transactions is a way to to greatly increase the fungibility of. Uh, Bitcoins. You, I mean, it, it increases it indirectly. So it doesn't directly. I mean, so what what Bitcoin does have as a way to improve fungibility somewhat is the idea that the addresses are not reused. So you know, when you make a payment and it's split into a payment and a change address, there's some ambiguity as to which was the payment and which was the change. And as that flows through the system, and you know, there are thousands of transactions in a big graph, it, it becomes increasingly more ambiguous. As to you know was right, which was still the owner, and was one of the big innovations at Armory with the hierarchical deterministic wallets and yeah. being able to to have the backup of all these uh, addresses. Right, the HD wallets are very cool in the sense that you have a a kind of uh, upfront backup, so you know it, it creates an almost infinite set of subkeys that yeah. you can use while being assured that you can. Rebuild, rebuild, and reclaim all those coin ownerships with a single compact backup, and, and, and there are and also, also child seeds, also in the trees. Right. You know, it just we adds a lot of potential applications with segregation of duties. And yes, yes, it's it's uh, subdivisible to sort of, for example, a division in the company yeah. or, and sort of control and so forth. And the uh, confidential transactions help only in so much that because the values are not visible. It's now less clear which is the change address and which is the payment. So, you know, if you go into a shop and you pay $9.99 for something and you receive, you know, $3.37 back in change, it's pretty obvious that that was the $9.99 was probably the payment. It's probably the $3.37 belongs to the same guy that started out with, you know, the uh, $13.36 in change that he paid in. And so it, it helps in that regard. And there are also some kind of protocols used in the network to improve fungibility. So one of those is a protocol coin called CoinJoin that Gregory Maxwell developed. And actually, confidential transactions improve the effectiveness of that. So what CoinJoin does is simply combine payments from multiple people into a unified transaction that pays all of the people they would have paid and pays respectively their change back. But looking at it from the outside, there can then have been some ambiguity as to Who's paying for which item? But because all those values are exposed in Bitcoin, if you're not careful and you don't choose the amounts in the right range, some of the ambiguity can be lost, potentially all of it. And so with confidential transactions, actually, 
it's in some sense perfect because there's complete ambiguity that you know any of those inputs could correspond to any output which increases plausible deniability and therefore fungibility right and so another thing to say about fungibility is there's a distinction between fungibility and anonymity so fungibility is a necessary property for an electronic cash system and everybody should want that you know merchants and users and society at large because it's a basic property for an effective uh, payment system. Which is the opposite of Mike Hearn's argument with regards to red listing or, or blacklisting. Yeah, of so different Bitcoins right. and Satoshis. That he wants a direct strike at the fungibility of the, the underlying unit in the protocol. Yeah, I mean, the way I understand red lists, it was some kind of concern to have a way to warn users that uh, a coin they received was involved in some theft further back in its history. But um, I think the, the, the issue with that is it, it encourages degradation in fungibility. So we really don't want to get into a situation where there's a run on fungibility where, you know, if people are left with a coin that, you know, maybe there's some company operating a red list and there have been a couple of companies that, started to do related things. I think one of them stopped for lack of interest or complaints from the businesses and users in the Bitcoin ecosystem that this would damage fungibility. So they kind of put it on hold. But there are a couple of those, a couple of people have tried things like that. Or at least any public talking about it. Yes. I mean, I think that can be another outcome that people carry on and talk about it less. But uh, the, the risk is then that, you know, you receive a coin, which is kind of red listed or blacklisted or what have you. And now you, it's less spendable. Right. So now you're sort of if it, the reason it's less spendable is because, you know, maybe some of the merchants subscribe to the red list provider and won't accept it. And so then then, you know, you've you've got to maybe jump through a bunch of hoops to prove that you were nothing to do with it. So, you know, let's say which was her suggestion. Right. That, that was the red list suggestion. And a blacklist would be a kind of more hardline thing that it's not spendable, period or something, I think. So one one kind of humorous aside is the uh, when after the Silk Road trial and the U.S. government auctioned off the coins that they were able to seize from, uh, they removed the red list or blacklist. Right. I mean, uh, they tainting they they auctioned <laughs> them off. So I guess that was a, a a good move for a good assurance for Bitcoin fungibility. They've now been blessed by the U.S. government. <laughs> um, so that 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 was a good kind of uh, de facto indication for. Uh, fungibility and uh, yeah i mean they don't sell cocaine or other illegal substances right. that they seize and exactly. yet they sell bitcoin so right. it is a stamp like these are legal to buy and sell and trade just like they sell cars or houses or boats that they seize from the drug dealers yes so so to come back to the distinction between fungibility and anonymity or identity and investigation so i did a presentation at the Israeli um, Bitcoin sort of, uh, it wasn't a conference, but I just gave an invited talk that at their regular kind of uh, monthly meeting or something on privacy, identity, and fungibility. You can find it on the internet, uh, on, on YouTube. And in that presentation, I talk about the how different people would interact with a fungible system. So, you know, there are technologies available. They're kind of nascent right now, and the cryptography used is probably a bit too new to rely on, but there have been at least two proposals to sort of bring the blind signature level, the cryptographic assurance of former systems into Bitcoin. And those are uh, zero cash and zero coin. So zero coin came first. And actually, 
Zerocoin is an optimization of a 1999 paper by Sander and Tashmar that uh, provides uses a zero knowledge set membership proof. And so those, those kinds of technologies and, and the zero cash one uses some very new cryptography by Eli Ben Sassoon and the research group at the Technion there, which has only been out for a couple of years. Um, and that, that can potentially provide, you know, compact, efficient to verify fung- cryptographic fungibility assurances to Bitcoin and related technologies. Unfortunately, it's sort of very bleeding edge technology. So it's a little risky to use it right now. But, you know, to the extent that the idealized cryptographic electronic cash system should provide cryptographic fungibility and then it can add identity as needed at the payment protocol layer, which is a separate higher layer that is point to point between the parties. And so my argument in that longer presentation, which uh, listeners can go look at, was that, you know, most businesses are required anyway by law to keep business records. Most users keep kind of, you know, just transaction logs in their wallets for their own convenience to know where they're spending their money and keep their receipts when they buy things online electronic receipts. So basically there's an opportunity for investigators and law enforcement to do as they already do and, you know, issue businesses with subpoenas and put together information about, you know, the rental car that was bought when somebody, you know, robbed a bank and drove away in a rental car or whatever, you know, connect the dots, the, the hotels, the flights, the rental cars, the coffee shops, and you can collect it all together and put it together. So that's, that kind of mirrors the existing, societal fabric of the kind of balance between you know social norms for privacy by default but the powers for you know law enforcement to investigate and keep society safe yeah so uh, this has been episode three in a week with dr adam back we've been talking about confidential transactions uh thanks for being with us dr back thank you get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.